the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Hi, and welcome to Planted with Sarah Pion. I'm Sarah Pion, your host, and today we have Elise McDonough, brand manager of confections at Canacraft. She is an 18-year veteran of the cannabis industry. She's the author of Bong Appetit Cookbook from Vice, the official High Times Cannabis Cookbook, and Marijuana for Everybody. Uh, like I said, she's currently a brand manager at Canacraft. She's responsible for confections marketing within California's largest cannabis company. Um, I known those guys for ages. They were wonderful. Formerly a product specialist for Leafly and contributor to Vice, Cannabis Now, Green State, and Sensi Magazine. McDonough has been quoted in the New York Times, Vogue, and Bon Appetit. Uh, the first edibles editor at High Times Magazine and judge for world-famous cannabis cup competitions from 2002 to 2017. Elise dined upon ganja-infused specialties of underground chefs. We're going to have to talk about that. <laughs> Reviewed over 500 THC-infused products and established a reputation as a thought leader and tastemaker. Welcome, Elise. Thanks for being on the show today. Oh, thanks for having me. I, I really am um, happy to be here. Well, I I was really when when we decided to do this episode, I was super excited because I I love having people that I can nerd out with. <laughs> you are definitely one of those people. <laughs> How long have you been um, working in the movement and the industry? I first started working for High Times when I was uh, fresh out of college. I graduated from the School of Visual Arts in New York City and. So I started as an art assistant at High Times in, in 2002. And um, prior to that, you know, I was definitely a friend of the plant. Um, I found it when I was a teenage hippie cashier working at the Cleveland Food Co-op. So shout out to those folks. And we would do bat hits in the produce cooler and blow it up into the exhaust fan. <laughs> <laughs> right on. Um, and yeah, it was where I learned all about natural foods and all kinds of different diets and met a lot of really cool people who would become my close friends. And we all hung out in like a little counterculture neighborhood called Coventry. And so that's how I, you know, sort of identified as a cannabis person. Um, and then that has stayed with me my entire life. It's something I've always felt very strongly about. And when I was getting ready to graduate from college, I had a very inspirational uh, teacher in my senior year, and I remember he gave us a, a little pep talk about how we should apply for our dream jobs, and, you know, I did so, and I, I interviewed at places like Rolling Stone, and I sent a letter off to High Times, and, and lo and behold, I, uh, I was able to, to get a gig there, and it, it felt like winning the lottery. So are you a are you a Midwesterner than born and raised? I am. I am. I grew up in uh, Cleveland Heights. Yeah. Oh, okay. I'm a Midwesterner too, but I'm from a little further north. I'm from the <laughs> Upper Peninsula, Michigan. <laughs> oh, cool, cool. Yeah. So you guys are a little bit more metropolitan than us. <laughs> so it was you... a great place to grow up. It really was. It That's was beautiful. Cool. If I, you know, I just think that Ohio is just so beautiful. I um. I went to school, my first time I went to school, I went to school for theater, and I did summer stock in Marietta, Ohio. And driving through there with just all the beautiful hills and trees, it's it's a gorgeous place. Yeah, Ohio has got a lot going for it. Um, you know, unfortunately, 
you know, a lot of the people that I knew in high school who were the best and brightest, almost everybody left. Everybody went to either New York City or Los Angeles or San Francisco, and it's uh, just a sad phenomenon. But I, I do think that people are increasingly going back, you know, for cost of living. And there's even places in Cleveland now. I, w- I was delighted to find out that there's a uh, Cleveland Cannabis school oh right on. Um, so yeah so yeah the movement is building everywhere oh that's very cool yeah I remember like the first time medical was going around in Ohio and as excited as I was for there to be changes there it was a really bad deal and uh I was really I was really yeah. bad when it didn't pass yeah that was um that was a pretty spectacular failure <laughs> yeah I wonder too like you know because there is this 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 movement of people going back to where they came from because like where I'm from I always joke that it takes just as long and is almost as expensive as going to Europe because you take a big plane to a major city and then you take a little plane into uh, Marquette the town that I'm from but I found that more and more people and I'm in my 40s that are my age are going back there because they're able to it's 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 safer it's quiet um you know, people can work from home now. It's cheaper in, like, what you get. Like, every so often we, you know, living in the Bay Area, it's like we'll go on and look at real estate in other areas and we'll be like, wow, that's that's beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's much more affordable, that's for sure. And I've definitely been following the careers of, you know, pre in the pre-COVID era, um, a lot of chefs were, were moving back um, to Pittsburgh and Cleveland and, even places like Akron Canton, um, it's a lot easier to open up a restaurant and there's a lot of demand for, you know, different kinds of cuisine. So I've been following sort of the return of people, um, you know, some of my good friends from high school, uh, Natalie Lanise is a, is a renowned artist and, and she went back, she went to Toledo and I have another friend named Karen Mastrangelo who studied um, acupuncture and, you know, there's acupuncturists everywhere in California, but if you're looking for it on the on the west side of Cleveland, you know, there's a lot less competition. And so it's it's wonderful to see people bring all of these progressive ideas and, and great energy back to the Midwest. Yeah, it's kind of like the renaissance of the small towns in a way. Yeah, for sure. And I would love to see more cannabis culture. I mean, there definitely was very ingrained cannabis culture when I was growing up in Northeast Ohio. And the laws were fairly lenient you know I think up to over an ounce is when you started to get into real trouble but there was definitely a thriving hippie community and for many years we had organized a drum circle that took place every weekend Uh, there's a park that's behind the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and it's right on Lake Erie and so we'd get the hippies from the east side and the hippies from the west side would all gather together and we'd have like a little potluck dinner and, and hang out and drum you know it was a cool scene that yeah I, I love that it, growing up in Michigan it wasn't quite the same it was like you would go to jail for resin in your bowl unless you're in Ann Arbor and then you know we all dreamed about being in Ann Arbor especially for hash bash um, oh yeah yeah <laughs> you know but now the things are changing there it's, I'm, I'm hoping too because Northern Michigan University which is my first alma mater they were I think they were the first state university to actually have a cannabis program so I was really I was excited about that because I felt like 
that was an indication of where they were going to go legally with cannabis in the state. Like it was a push when you're looking at you know educational institutions starting to see it as a viable option. I remember seeing them at uh, was it uh, CCIA one year they were, they were tabled and I at when, when it was in Oakland and I was like you're you're a long way from home <laughs> what's going on because um, I have so many friends that got in trouble for cannabis in college and just. It's just surprising how it's changing. Um, when you went to go work for High Times, did you did you move to New York? Yes. So I had moved there to, to go to college. And, um, yeah, I ended up living in New York City for 12 years. Um, that included, yeah, college and working at High Times for eight years in the office there. And then with my partner, uh, I moved to California in 2010 and was working for High Times from an office in my home in Santa Cruz. And that's when I wrote the cookbook for them, and we brought the Cannabis Cup to the United States. Um, So it's definitely never been a dull moment in my career as far as um, the cannabis industry is concerned. Going back to the cookbook, now, you you did a lot of work with um, writing about edibles and things like that and high times. And I really wanted to talk to you about edibles and the culinary movement. What got you interested in it? And I'd really like to see if there's any like milestones as far as where you think things kind of picked up or got more sophisticated, things like that. Oh, sure, sure. So I personally was interested in cooking. I, you know, as I said, I was interested in health foods and I was um, this teenage hippie. I was a vegetarian. So my mom encouraged me to make my own food and I got really into it. And then when I was in New York City, I started taking classes on like nights and weekends at the Natural Gourmet Institute. And so that's where I picked up a lot of like my, you know, core cooking skills. And um, at high times, so I was working in the art department and laying out the magazine. And a lot of times when the recipe column would come in, there wouldn't always be photos. Um, So sometimes we would recreate the recipes so we could take pictures. And then we just kind of got really into it. Um, And so the cookbook came about when I pitched the idea of, hey, let's compile all the best recipes from the last, you know, 35 years of high times at that point. And we'll test them all out and we'll refine them and, um, yeah, we made a book out of it. It was a lot of fun. I think I probably gained about 10 pounds from all the can of butter. Um, <laughs> Got to make sure it's yeah, right, I though. I developed all those recipes and just kind of refined uh, the recipes that had been submitted a little bit here and there. And that took place in 2010. And, yeah, the book came out in 2012. And it was just very well positioned. You know, at that time, there weren't very many... Uh, cannabis cookbooks. There certainly weren't any that were from major publishers or that had the kind of like lavish photos and like beautiful art direction that we were able to do. So it's kind of sparked this trend and now it's a a pretty viable niche. You know, there's a lot of cannabis cookbooks out there now. And as far as the, the cannabis culinary movement, I mean, I think when that book came out, the marketing materials surrounding it was one of the first times that people talked about going beyond brownies, you know, mm-hmm. and this idea that you could infuse savory cuisines, you know, savory food, you can infuse anything. That was kind of new to people at that point. Like they, 
in the popular imagination, people associated cannabis edibles with brownies, cookies, goo balls, stuff like that. And anything else outside of that realm was seen as, you know, new and exotic. Yeah, it can be. I remember when I first started working in a dispensary in, gosh, what was it? Uh, 2012. And um, I had, I ended up getting oil and doing some different things with it because I, you know, what we were seeing in the dispensaries at that time was rather basic too. And, you know, a lot of it, I just remember when I got my card when I was going through chemo and like taking home like a cocoa mix and <laughs> just having to basically, you know, hold your nose and take it down. And you're just thinking about the different ways that you could make something that's more sophisticated and tasty. And there's been like in the past eight years, there's been so much change around what we're even seeing in dispensaries and the flavors of them, even to the point where you have to have the conversations with people like it tastes wonderful. It looks beautiful. Keep it in a cabinet that somebody who doesn't, you know, you don't want to accidentally give somebody your edibles. Um, and, and not that it's a big deal because in some ways, I mean, it's scary, but it won't hurt them. But it is really like back in the day, somebody knew when it was my cannabis cookie because it was, you know, not so tasty. <laughs> now <laughs> you could easily, it, it, that, that, the whole, that old story of eating a brownie and not knowing it can so much more easily happen these days. And if anything, it's kind of like, hey, you know, you just ate my cookie, not so much. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry you got high. <laughs> well, yeah, a few pro tips. If you're making weed brownies, always make a batch of regular brownies also. And don't forget to label them. <laughs> and that way you can just munch on the regular brownies if you get a craving. Um, yeah, for sure, for sure. Uh, when I first moved to Santa Cruz in 2010, I, I was very motivated to work with a group called Wham. And I had met Valerie Corral, the founder of Wham. I had met her in Amsterdam um, some some years previous, and I was very impressed with her and her husband at the time, uh, Mike Corral. And so I volunteered with that group, um, and they had a baking program where they made flour, and what they called you know Wham flour. They would take um, the trim and they would sift it through screens until you get this very fine pulverized, basically like a mixture of pulverized leaf and like popcorn buds and like some keef and stuff. And they would bake with it and you oh, could wow. like substitute it for flour, like half of the flour that a recipe called for. You would use this like cannabis flour and it made some very, very potent baked goods. Um, but yes, it tastes extremely, extremely herbaceous. Um, but yeah, there's just these different paradigms when you're cooking with cannabis. Are you trying to maximize the potency because you need it to treat a medical condition? Or are you trying to just microdose and like add a little bit of flavor? And so I think in the early years of cooking with cannabis, it was so rare and precious, you know, when you're in the, the prohibition paradigm that you're trying to maximize every little bit and get every you know milligram of THC out of there and make it as efficient and potent as possible. Um, and I think that has completely transformed in the last couple of years to now like a mainstream 
trending idea of, you know, using cannabis in a lot of different versatile ways just to add a little tiny touch of psychoactivity to a meal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. There, I mean, a little, a little bit can be a really nice lift. I, you know, there's a lot of people who have been turning to pre-made edibles, but we still have a lot of people who, just for the, you know, for the sake of making it at home, because I don't know about how cost-effective it really is to make your own edibles unless you're growing for yourself, you know, because getting purchasing hash or sometimes people will be like, I'll, I want an ounce of flour because I want to make brownies. I'm like, wow, that's, that's an expensive batch of brownies you've got going on there. Um, do you have any, any tips for people around that if they wanted to go it themselves? Like what would be one of the more efficient economical ways to do it? Sure. I mean, previous to the regulated era, you did used to be able to go into a dispensary and, you know, buy a cheap bag of trim or shake or what they used to call like food grade hash, you Mm -hmm. know, Um, but you can't really get those options as easily anymore. Um, But I will say that, you know, a little bit goes a long way. And if you're able to get a good deal on some quality cannabis and maybe it's a little bit old or something like that, you know, you can sometimes find things that are pretty significantly marked down And that's always good to cook with, you know, that's something that's uh, accessible and you can definitely, you know, maximize the value working with flour or even hash and just infusing it into edibles. Um, And yeah, something that we've been doing that's been really fun with Satori, um, the chocolate company that I'm working with now, we encourage people to use the chocolate as a base product to infuse their own homemade edibles and it cuts out a lot of the guesswork. And it makes it less intimidating for somebody who's never cooked with cannabis before. So I think there's a big potential for the ready-made ingredients to become a bigger market set segment. I yeah, I I totally agree with you on that. I think that it's really important. That I mean, you know, back in the day when we did a lot more home baking for our edibles, it was always kind of an iffy thing as to how much you were actually taking. And I think for successful use so that we can, you know, one, some people, you know, get nervous about euphoria, but I think that more so it's just, we should always be aware of our milligram amounts just because it keeps us in touch with our bodies. And so if people are wanting to use it in their lives more, they'll know what amounts are appropriate for what times in their day. And being able to use a, a product like Satori to as a base for other recipes is a really great way of being able to control dosage. Um, and actually, segging into that, how did you how did you get involved with Canacraft and and let's talk about the products and and what you're looking at with that? Yeah, sure. Um, so I had been following Canacraft obviously for a long time. You know, it's a company that I greatly admired. They're very authentic. They're old school growers. And they developed Care by Design, which has helped and healed so many people. And that's um, pioneering the CBD ratios and really popularizing the idea of CBD. And they were way ahead of the curve on that. Yeah, um, they were. To the extent that they own (laughs) CBD.org. I know. I love that every time I see that. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So, yeah, through their work with Martin Lee and – 
Tiffany Devitt, who heads up um, Care by Design these days, and their partnership with Project CBD. They just really did a lot to educate consumers and give them solid, you know, science-based, fact-checked, reliable information, which was so, so lacking, especially in the early days of the CBD craze. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, it was a good group of people. I, I was very excited to be able to go up and work with them and Um, Today, I'm developing some new products and some new brands, as well as continuing to refine and innovate at Satori. And, you know, as somebody who had been in the industry for a long time, you know, people gift you things. And so I would get a lot of edibles, you know. Mm -hmm. It's very like an embarrassment of riches, but people would just give me more edibles than I could ever, ever consume realistically. But still, the Satori CBD almonds were something that I would go into a dispensary and spend my own money for. That's And like when lot. I was looking for people to work with, I was like, you know, that counts a lot. <laughs> yeah, it, it truly does. You I want to really love the product. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, I totally understand that because I get... I get a lot of, of product gifted to me too. And it's, it's really something when, you know, it, it is... Um, it's a it's a very fortunate thing, um, but when you actually like something enough that when you're out you'll go back and get it that that speaks volumes about a product. Yeah, yeah, it sure does. It's um really tasty chocolate, really wonderful natural ingredients. You know the dried blueberries, the dried strawberries, um, California almonds, and I love working with our our pastry chef, uh, Matt Kolzicki, you know, who's classically trained. He has a background at K&M Chocolates, which is served at the French Laundry. Um, So I learn a lot from him, and and we have a lot of fun trying out new ideas. So it's a a great environment for creativity. Do you work with both milk and dark with those products? Yes. Yes, we do. What's the percentage of cacao in those? Um, the dark chocolate that we currently use is uh, 55%. Mm-hmm. And I think the milk chocolate is around 24. I'd have to check. Yeah, I always, it always seems like now that we're getting more sophisticated consumers, people are asking about, they get captivated by the percentage of cacao and the sourcing and things like that, whereas before it was more of how strong is it and, you know, does it taste good? <laughs> Yeah, you're definitely seeing more consciousness around ingredients, more consciousness around health, which is great. Um, So, yeah, we strive to make the highest quality products that we can and to make sure that we're sourcing from a responsible supply chain where we can make sure that it's fair trade certified and non-GMO. And that's very important to us. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's I mean, I think that and I've, I've said this in other episodes as well, but I think that cannabis as an industry has this unique opportunity to really set the standards for not only, you know, we're working on social justice, but that's, that's a very uphill battle, but also just like standards, especially because our products are held to such higher standards than produce, grapes, you know, for vineyards or anything like that, which is, which is crazy, but Maybe, you know, there's there's a middle ground between that and what we're seeing in other, you know, consumables as far as, you know, just grocery store products. Oh, yeah. I mean, the California regulations hold us to a standard that's beyond organics. 
um, even sometimes with the 10% variance limit, you know, that's a stricter threshold than some ph- pharmaceuticals operate under. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, people need to realize that they really have dialed it in as far as making sure that cannabis products are as clean and safe as they can possibly be. And I was just thinking, too, I'm kind of leapfrogging a little bit, but we were talking a little bit about how cannabis is, has started to change, especially like the culinary movement around it. And then you were talking about your colleague at Canacraft, who's a chef. But and, and then I was mentioning, you know, how things sometimes didn't taste so great before. But can, the flavor of cannabis itself can be really pleasant paired correctly. And, you know, when we're looking at some of the more high end culinary experimentation with cannabis, what are you seeing as far as that goes, like with um, food and terpene profiles and pairings and things like that? Yeah, I mean, what I love about the cannabis culinary movement is that there's so many different ways that the cannabis plant can be used as an ingredient and ways that cannabis and food can intersect, like all the way from just pairing strains with the flavors of the food that you're serving to infusing the food, um, to using the raw plant as an ingredient. Um, There's just so much that you can do with it. And I I just love it. I love it. Um, So I think as far as the using flour or trim as an ingredient, obviously there's a lot of chlorophyll in there. Um, That's what gives you that grassy flavor. So a lot of people have developed methods to try to make this, the, the flavor less obvious. Um, Jeff, the 420 chef is, is somebody who really pioneered an ingenious method for removing a lot of the unpleasantness of the grassy flavor. But I honestly, I just like to look for recipes where you can work with it. It works well with other herbaceous recipes. It works well in chimichurri. It works well in pesto. I honestly really like to use it for things like cheddar scones um yeah the flavor really works in there um and i really think the future of cooking with cannabis is is going to be cooking with keef and unpressed hash you know ice hash i think has a great flavor on its own Mm -hmm. i tend to think of it as a seasoning I, i use it liberally like a spice and the flavor of the hash is so earthy and beautiful it it adds a lot to finished dishes especially things that include uh, caramel or toffee. I really love pecan pie infused with hash, um, cinnamon buns, stuff when, like that. When you do your pecan pie, what do you do for the base? My grandma, my great-grandma used to use Kiro corn syrup. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, corn syrup is the way to do it. It's not a health food. <laughs> you can try to find, like, organic corn syrup, but it's still you know it's not good for you right but um that is the way to get a super gooey pecan pie you can try some other stuff you can try like brown rice syrup is um a somewhat you know if you're looking for harm reduction (laughs) brown (laughs) rice syrup um different things like that can can stand in a mixture of honey i've tried a couple different ways but the classic you know the classic comforting pecan pie has got to have some corn syrup in there yeah, yeah, I, 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 I totally agree. It's, it's a total guilty pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. But yeah, the cinnamon rolls, that was a revelation of just 
crumbling up the hash and like rolling it in there with the cinnamon and the butter. And it just, it added, it, it added so much to it. It really made it even better as a flavor. Um, so there's a way of cooking with cannabis when you're using this hash that you're not even trying to cover it up. It, it really is, um, you know, it's, it's adding a lot to the dish on its own. Do you think there's a difference in flavor between darker or blonder hashes? You know, I'd have to really get into it and, and try, and it depends on what you're cooking it with. Um, I, I tend to like to use what's most readily available to me, which is, um, you know, I'll get hash from friends where it's the, you know, it's like the chunkier grade B, you know, they call it. So it's not like the top shelf that you would smoke. Um, it might have a little bit more leafy material in it and stuff like that. But I find that that gives a really nice flavor and it's a, it's a great way to cook and be able to estimate your doses more precisely. It's more homogeneous than flour is. So that's, that's what I think is honestly going to be the future of cooking with cannabis is that hopefully in five to 10 years, we'll have so much cannabis being cultivated that the prices of things like, you know, high quality hash will come way down and we'll, we'll see, you know, somewhat like the traditional societies of places like Morocco, where people aren't really smoking flour, they're, they're smoking hash, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I... I love hash. That that was one of the, the harder things when legalization happened was that for a while there it was really hard to find good hash. Yeah, yeah. And now we've got Biscotti and uh, Nasha and there's more brands who are focusing on um, that kind of hash making, especially people like Frenchie Cannoli getting back into the mix with his Temple Ball. Oh, I love Frenchie. And I highly recommend those. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, do not. Sleep I, on the temple balls if you see them at the store. Oh, you know, um, what was it? It was a couple years ago. I picked up one of his temple balls, and I cracked it open, and it was just so, like, just the process of like how the scent changed as it was exposed to the air, like, where it kind of went from like more spicy to more chocolatey. Like, it's just like his hashes are they're alive. Yeah, they're incredible, and it always reminds me of being back in Amsterdam, and um, yeah, you just can't get hash like that here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've heard good things about Papa and Barkley's hash as well. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah there's a lot of stuff that's come out that I haven't been able to try yet. Um, I am partial to the the Space Coyote collabs. Um, those are usually pretty nice. I picked up a good one. That was infused with some Utopia uh, ice hash, and that was delicious. Ooh, that would be good. That would be really good. What's your best? What's your, what's your besides edibles? What's your favorite way to use hash? Um, a lot of times, I'll just sprinkle a little bit of it onto a bowl. Um, that's just kind of my old school habit. I like to put it into joints sometimes. Um, I have all, like, I have a Puffco and everything, but I, I just use it so rarely. Um, I never really adopted dabbing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I guess I'm just too set in my ways. But, yeah, I just, like, I like crumbling hash up in a bowl or putting it on a joint or just sprinkling it on food. Yeah, oh, that's so good. Yeah, I, I you know, I, I have a... 
a rig for dabbing, but I found like when I first started working in cannabis, I wanted to experience everything. And that was like when dabbing was very, very new. So I had like, actually, when I moved from my place last year, I finally got rid of it. But I had a big old glass on glass rig with like the old titanium nail. <laughs> and um, as much as like I enjoyed the experience of being able to, you know, the intense experience of dabbing every so often, it, for me, I found it, it brought up my tolerance too much. And that's... That's one thing, too, with like when I talk to people about edibles, just with one of the goals that I always try to set for people when I'm consulting with them is how do we how do we use cannabis in a way that's mindful that we're not bringing up tolerance, not because there's shame around it, but honestly, you spend a lot of money when your tolerance goes up. So when people have light tolerances and they act embarrassed about it, I always look at them and I'm like, no, nah, you're in a good space. You save a lot of money. <laughs> You don't understand. Oh, yeah, yeah. You should never be embarrassed of a low tolerance. Um, I think there's there's some attitudes that are being left behind from the previous versions of cannabis culture where it was like this sort of macho thing of, can you take this giant dab and, and cough your lungs out? You know? Yeah. Um, I think it's not a competition to see who can get the highest. I think we should all just, yeah, enjoy it in the way that makes you feel good and comfortable. And yeah, otherwise it just becomes like expensive cigarettes, you know, and who needs that? Right, that's it. And and our bodies just are so different with the way we metabolize it. I mean, I, my, uh, my partner, he's, my fiance, he's, you know, he's a big guy and he smoked a lot when he was younger. But as he's gotten older, I, I jokingly refer to him in my classes as my two hit wonder because he's, he's twice my size. And he takes, now as he's gotten older, it's just two hits, and he's fine. And, you know, after years of touring on the road as a musician, you'd think you'd have a higher tolerance too, but not necessarily the case. And one of the things that we've really been getting into, um, I've, I've, I've been doing it for years, but I just started growing just like a few small plants in our patio, is, you know, using the leaves in our smoothies and really taking advantage of just the balancing effects of the non-euphoric use of cannabis plants. And, um, and I saw, because I was prepping for us to get together today, and I, I saw that recently you actually posted a tweet on Twitter about juicing. Oh, yeah, yeah. Juicing was something that I got into, uh, yeah, in 2010 when I had come out here and was volunteering with Wham. That was something that they were exploring. And um, Dr. William Courtney at that time was getting a lot of attention for juicing. Yeah. And it's a really great way to get the acidic cannabinoids and just use it as a health food. And that's something that I still do to this day is, you know, when I'm growing plants like I am now, I'll take some of those bigger families and just throw a little bit into a smoothie. And it's really wonderful. And I would love to see a future version of the regulated marketplace develop a way to have, you know, cannabis juice bars, you know, it's, it's non-euphoric. Um, and I think that I would love to see just bags of leaves for sale, just like you can get a bunch of kale. Yeah. Yeah. That would, and people are so surprised by that. But then again, you still have a lot of people referring to cannabis as leaf rather than bud. So, you, you know, there's a little bit to go with the education, um, but just like going back to like using 
and actually, for our listeners, there will be a lot of people who will know about this, but I'm sure we'll have some people who who aren't familiar with it. Would you want to talk a little bit about the decarboxylating of cannabis? Oh, sure, sure. So when the plant is alive and it's a, you know, raw, fresh plant grown out of the ground, it even if it's flowering, it's it's not going to make you feel euphoric. If you if you rip those flowers off the fresh plant and, and try to smoke them, it would be impossible. Um, so yeah, in that state, it's it's non psychoactive, and you can juice the leaves. You can juice fresh gooey buds if if you so desire. Um, and it's the process of drying or heating the plant that we know of as decarboxylation or decarb for short, um, that process converts the acidic form of the cannabinoids to their psychoactive form. So as they're decarboxylating, they are slowly becoming activated and the THC is becoming psychoactive. So if you ate a dried flower, if you ate a dried bud, you would probably feel some highness off of it but not a lot because it hasn't been fully decarbed. And if you're not eating it with any sort of fat, um, your body isn't going to absorb as, as much of the cannabinoids that are in that bud. Um, that's what you see happen a lot with dogs. Like sometimes dogs will get into somebody's bag of flour and, and chew on a couple buds and you might notice the effect on them, but it's not nearly as serious as when a dog eats an edible or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so the buds, the buds are, somewhat they've had some activation of THC happening because they've been dried but then if you really want to activate it to the most efficient levels you would toast it in an oven Um, and there's a a lot of different studies that have been done on the optimal time and temperatures uh, for decarb Mm -hmm. and then you just kind of toast your buds and that activates more of the cannabinoids so that when you infuse it into a fat you will be able to get more high and that's kind of what i'm talking about of like the paradigm of prohibition and trying to wring every single little milligram of thc out of that pot that you could possibly get um that's what led to a lot of like gnarly tasting can of butters that were super green um so there's some chefs these days who will skip the decarb step and decarb as they're infusing and you get less of like the toasted taste of a decarb bud. Um, I personally don't like how decarb bud tastes like that, that toasting really changes the flavor. Yeah. Um, but yeah, many people regard it as a necessary step. I feel that depending on what issues you're trying to treat, um, you can skip it if you want to, and if you, especially if you're simmering something for a long time, it will decarb in the cooking process as well. Well, and I'm wondering with that, if you're not doing a two-step process and you're just decarbing as you're infusing, how much of a fuller spectrum you're getting as well? Yeah, it would be interesting to find out. I know that there's people who have been working on different lab tests to determine that, Um it's fascinating to me, and that's why I, when I was at High Times, one of the bigger projects we did was called the Ultimate Can of Butter Experiment, and we took the same flour, we took the same kind of butter, 
we made cannon butter four different using four different methodologies, and then we had it lab tested to see you know how it returned as far as converting cannabinoids. And uh, it was fascinating, you know. So there really are a lot of different methods that you can adapt to, you know, your level of skill, the kind of gear that you already have on hand. Um, that's one thing I love about cooking with cannabis is that you really don't need to buy a lot of fancy equipment. You can almost always use whatever you have on hand to make an infusion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's so true. But if you were to go fancy... Have you done any experimentation oh, yeah. with cannabis and sous vide? Oh, yeah, yeah, I love that. I, I love was imagining you had. I love doing it with mason jars. Yeah, I love just, um, that's one of my favorite infusion methods. And that's what we predominantly used for the Bon Appetit cookbook is uh, sealing the cannabis and the fat in a mason jar. And then you put them in a hot water bath and you simmer them. And that way you can do simultaneous fats all at once. So if you have like a jar with cannabis and coconut oil and a jar with cannabis and butter and a jar with cannabis and olive oil, then you just simmer them all together. And then you've got your whole little cannabis pantry ready when you're done. How's the flavor with that? Did you find that it was, was it, was it more delicate or what, what did you experience? Was there a difference when you, or actually, why do you like it? That's, that's the better question. It tastes slightly better to me than it does when you toast the buds first. Mm -hmm. um, it's just a personal taste thing. Um, a lot of people might not even notice it. Yeah. I'm wondering, too, like, because one of the things that I've had to explain to people when they're curious about edibles and, you know, we we talk so often about, you know, the spectrum of feel from indica to sativa. I don't I don't actually allocate that to flowers because as you know unless you're collecting like old land races everything is hybridized these days but just to you know talk about the spectrum of feel and I always tell people with edibles by and large we're looking at a hybrid like feel because one we have you know the THC changing to 11 hydroxy um, as it's going through our system but also the fact that a lot of the terpenes that create that spectrum of feel are destroyed in the extraction process. And I was wondering if you could speak to that a little bit. Oh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, they cover this very well on, on Bon Appetit as well. But yeah, the terpenes are destroyed when you cook. They're very volatile. They're very aromatic. Um, so if you're trying to preserve terpenes, you have to do a cold infusion or you have to just use like isolated terpenes that you would add back in after the cooking process is done. So if you're seeking to use terpenes, it's always better in a cold dish. Um, but that's interesting because, you know, at Canacraft, we're bound by the regulations. And the regulations say that we can't make any statements about the effects of cannabis without significant substantiation through scientific studies. Mm -hmm. So... It's interesting with the whole indica sativa thing because there's so much debate around that. And if there is significantly different effects, you know, nobody really knows. There's no real science to prove it one way or the other. I happen to think that there's something going on because so many people swear by their preference for one or the other. Mm -hmm. um, but that said, when you're eating it, the way it breaks down in your body, 
it's really tough to tell if it's having any kind of effect um, other than a psychosomatic one. And, and there's right. no science that I'm aware of that that would back up those claims. Um, that said, I think it's fine for companies to be transparent about what they're using and to label their products as such, as long as they're not specifically promising some kind of specific effect because it's a sativa edible versus an indica edible. I just don't know how you would substantiate that. Yeah, yeah. And it, I, with with all the, I'm, I'm being that, you know, I've been working uh, for a dispensary for, God, eight years now, um, seeing like thousands of people, it, there is something to be said for, I think that if, if somebody were to ask me to make a guess, I would say that, you know, there's definitely some placebo effect that comes into play with that. But, you know, I just think that regardless of whether you're looking at something that's being designated as indica sativa hybrid, just because of the way we metabolize it, by and large, most of us tend to have a more of a relaxed after effect, you know, and it's, it can be mm -hmm. just, it's so significantly helpful for things like sleep and relaxation. Whereas like with sativas or something that's more uplifting, I should say, it seems to me that I've gotten more feedback of something having lift when it's taken sublingually. And I don't know. Oh yeah, for sure. Know. There's, there is some science around that. Um, I'd have to, I'd have to delve into it and do a little bit more research. It was something I had researched in the past, mm -hmm. but it definitely seems like when you're bypassing the digestive system, you you can get like a, a more designer quote unquote effect from different kind of co combinations of cannabinoids. Mm -hmm. um, I did consult on a project called Ovo where that was exactly what they were doing. They were making these designer blends of cannabinoids and putting them into a sublingual strip um, designed to give specific effects. And it's, it's very fascinating and it's, it's some next level stuff. Um, so yeah, I think there's definitely the potential to develop products like that, but we need a lot more study around it. Yeah. And I think, too, one of the things that companies and, and some companies are very aware of this, but is just like with feel, with dosage, it's like you can it's like I say in my classes, this information that I'm about to give you <laughs> is a report back on how the majority of human beings respond. And now I'm going to give you tools on how to figure out how you respond to these things, because mm -hmm. we are mm -hmm. we're so incredibly different, like. I feel very lucky that I'm pretty much textbook how I respond to everything. My body loves CBD. I don't get any weird blues or anything from it. Too much THC wigs me out. <laughs> you know, it's just pretty much your normal response. But like, yeah, I have met people who don't respond to edibles at all. They can smoke, they can dab, they have feel. But for whatever reason, they could have like a whole bottle of capsules and they don't metabolize it at all. And it's, you know, our bodies are still very much mysteries to us. It's like, yes, there's some science as to how they work, but we have all these anomalies just because of our personal body chemistries. And then for women, you know, our estrogen in our bodies is a significant factor as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, everyone is, that's right. Everyone's endocannabinoid system is, is very different and, and needs different different things and I do think that, that a lot this is just my personal you know theory my my hypothetical here is that I do think that a lot of people who are drawn to cannabis 
are drawn to it because they are possibly naturally cannabinoid deficient with their own endocannabinoids. So I just, I really think that, you know, I wish the medical establishment would fast track more of this research. I mean, I know it's happening in the U.S., but it's, um, it's been kind of slow to really build the momentum that we need. And I think that just so many things are going to become unlocked once we study the endocannabinoid system more and how it balances homeostasis in the body. And um, I, I really think it's going to revolutionize medicine within the next 10 to 20 years. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think that it actually I do. Well, I do uh, trainings with UCSF and Kaiser and for Kaiser. Not right now because we're dealing with COVID and we do Im- I do in-person trainings with them. But usually once a quarter I do a training with uh, oncology, pharmacology students at UCSF. And one of the things that they always ask me about is, you know, well, for this, what would you recommend? And how much would you recommend of it? And they always want these cut and dried answers as to like exactly what you would tell each person. And... That's usually when I look at him and I say, well, you know (laughs) that what you give one person will not be the same as the other person. So it's just even like how it is with your pharmaceuticals. You, You might start out with a general dose that, you know, would work for a majority of people, but you're still going to be, the doctor's going to be following up with that patient and finding out how things are working and adjusting the medication. So you're going to be working with that with your patients in the future if you're not now. And they just, they first they stop and then they're like, give me a knowing look. And they're like, oh yeah, yeah, I guess that's right. So I'm wondering too, if working with cannabis for some people, some medical professionals will give them more of a mindfulness too about how to work with people and their individual bodies. Because with the way insurance has become and we have 15 minutes with our doc and it's like in and out without barely any conversations sometimes we're not enough to get the full picture which is why we have a lot of people who get really late diagnoses especially with things like cancers I'm wondering if it'll it can help create more mindfulness with that as well I know I just went on a tangent oh sure (laughs) no it's interesting it represents this shift away from you know, the way that Western medicine seeks to reduce everything to, you know, isolated compounds and really compartmentalizing what causes disease. And like, that's valuable and that serves a purpose, but like we have to, like the trend towards treating the patient holistically, I think is really where we want to be and trying to prevent problems before they start. And um, I think cannabis is definitely a part of that, you know, And it was very interesting when I was volunteering with WAM, um, they served, you know, 200 low-income patients who were struggling with either terminal or or chronic illnesses. And for those people, WAM provided so much more than just their plant medicine. WAM provided this community and these opportunities to volunteer and connect with people and have social support. And I just always wished that um, we could have quantified that value in terms of what it saved, you know, the, 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 the state's safety net as far as we're providing this community-based healthcare and community-based safety net through WAM. 
you know, that model is something that I really think could be replicated in other places. And, um, yeah, I'm still in touch with them and I'm still, you know, trying to help them out when I can. And so they're back with a new brand called uh, Wham Phytotherapies. Uh And I would urge people to check it out. Yeah. Yeah. Valerie's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, that was one of the things that made me sad with the passing of 64 was that the services that dispensaries were able to offer and, and support the community with went away. But even more so, like I remember um, sitting and, and talking to one of the founders of Champ in San Francisco, and he was talking about how, um, it was actually it was Michael Aldrich, and he was talking about how at during 9-11, they got a call when that happened, they said, you know, we should open the dispensary early because people are going to be looking for support. And when they showed up, there was a line already going down the street. So they ordered pizzas and they, you know, they were there as a community to support one another going through something traumatic. And they had, you know, I mean, that was when more, it was medical. So people were coming and they were having a lot of issues. And we have a very large indigent, indigent population that relies on cannabis for relief as well. And I wish that we were looking more towards, on a state level, what we should be doing to make sure that cannabis you know, dispensaries companies are serving the public and helping them rather than creating high taxation and these crazy regulations that make it really hard for people to succeed and is why we have a very large, successful traditional market that's currently being attacked. Oh, yeah. I mean, the underground caregiving is, is never going to stop, and I don't think it ever should. Um, I, I do wish that the state would take more of an interest in quantifying the value that that kind of community-based health care provides. And, um, you know, I'll have to do some more research and see if there's any studies that have been, have been done already. Um, but, yeah, I think there's, there's so much more to it than, than just the cannabis. You know, when we were working in the Wham Garden, you know, the patients would come up there, and, and depending on everyone's, you know, abilities and, and and um, skill sets, you know, some people would sit and trim or they would make capsules or some people would go out into the garden and, and leaf all the plants and water. And, and just the process of seeing those plants grow and, and having somewhere to go and people to be with was, was very healing in and of itself. Yeah. And I think that's a big part of what's missing in our, our current um, insane healthcare system. Yeah. Well, and I think it's something that we're you know, we really need to work to not lose in cannabis because it's, there's definitely been shift. And I know for myself personally, that was one of the very big reasons that I chose to stay involved was because it was helping, helping people and a, and a, and a face to face, but greater scale than I had been able to do my work prior. And that's, it personally for me is I find is very valuable and it's one of the things that a lot of my my once critically ill patients but now are critically ill visitors to my store (laughs) since we can't call them patients anymore you know that they miss is that you know we had we had a therapist that had classes for anxiety and depression and you know people going through cancer or, or what have you. And there's just, I just think that 
as members of our society, just like economies and businesses should always be doing more to support the community, which I mean, now in the time of COVID, we need more than ever, although we are going to have to be creative in how we do it. Um, but before we end, because we are running out of time, and I, and I could talk to you all day. <laughs> <laughs> I really want to, you know, before we close, just what it, and I know that there may be some things that are under development that you're not able to talk about right now, but for the future of your work and things that you're looking forward to, um, either with your private practice or with Canacraft, would you want to share that? Oh, um, yeah, we have some things in the works that I can't quite talk about yet, but we are introducing a seasonal menu, so there will be different different confections and different flavors um, every season, and that's something that I'm really excited about doing. The first one that we launched was the S'mores Bites, um, so those have been out all summer, and that was just like a really fun, really fun little confection. It's um, a fluffy marshmallow that's rolled in cannabis-infused chocolate, and um, graham cracker crumbs. So Ooh. you really get all of these nostalgic flavors in one bite. So yeah, that was our first seasonal flavor. So we're going to be doing more limited edition flavors like that. We also recently launched mints. So we're going to be doing some more work around the mints and uh, beverages and all kinds of things. It's really like the Willy Wonka cannabis factory over there. <laughs> <laughs> And otherwise, yeah, I've just um, just been hunkering down here at home and watering my plants every day and doing yoga with them. And hopefully um, we'll have a better 2021. But, yeah, I would love to catch up again sometime and um, we'll stay in touch for sure. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I would love that, too. You're always welcome to come back whenever you want to just visit or talk about something and also so for our listeners so that they can check you out um how can they find you online yeah absolutely um people can find me on twitter at elise mcd 420 so that's e-l-i-s-e-m-c-d 420 um, as well as on instagram at cannabis edibles 420 and uh, yeah hit me up ask me questions about infusions um I'm always there, and I love to help people out. Thank you so much. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Um, that was Elise McDonough, brand manager of Confections at Canacraft. And check out her books because she was writing some really great award-winning books even well before she was doing her great work with Canacraft. Um, to follow us on social media, on Twitter, it is Planted with Sarah. It is also Planted with Sarah on Instagram, and it's www.plantedwithsarah.com. If you want to follow my personal Instagram, which has classes and other things that are going on, it's Sarah Mitra Pion on Instagram. That's S-A-R-A-M-I-T-R-A-P-A-Y-A-N. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today. I hope you had as much fun as I did. And join us next month. Uh, coming in September, we're going to start doing two episodes a month, and I'm really excited about the new season. So everyone stay healthy and stay safe and be kind. Take care. Take care.